0: Hello my friends. Today we're talking to Ravia, VP of Product Legal Technology at ThoughtTrace, part of Thomson Reuters, and we discuss how AI document understanding technology can save hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars in the legal industry, how to encourage a healthy work-life balance for your team, and how to be aware of people's different styles of working within your teams. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. I think over a year ago, we did an episode with the CTO of ThoughtTrace. So for those that might not have heard that episode, can you give me like the overview of what ThoughtTrace does?
1: Sure. Yeah. ThoughtTrace is a document understanding AI platform really, really well established in the oil and gas sort of energy space. And what they do is help users analyze hundreds or thousands or millions of documents for key information. So they build models that can extract the type of data and information um, folks are looking for to understand out of their documents. At Thomson Reuters, we're very interested in, in those sorts of things. And so we're in the legal space. And really, our goal is to to help ThoughtTrace scale into the legal space and, and solve those same kinds of problems for our legal professionals, our users, that ThoughtTrace originally could solve for oil and gas users or business people.
0: Yeah, I remember the time-saved metrics were one of like the craziest parts of hearing about that because, I mean, yeah, it takes a while for people to read through documents and pick out what they need. Can you refresh me on those metrics I, I i just remember they're crazy
1: yeah so i'm not exactly sure which ones Joel shared with you but something that we just learned recently we, we had a lawyer using thought trace as part of um, a due diligence review and he said the amount of time thought trace saved was in the hundreds of hours and in terms of what that would cost them for outside counsel to do that work would be like thousands upon thousands of dollars, right? And
0: yeah, that's billable hours.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they were able to solve this problem. I, I think he said it took them like 20 minutes to get it done, right? it wow. would have taken hundreds of hours for outside counsel to do that work. So it's meaningful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what's your role at ThoughtTrace? And actually, can you give me a little bit of your background and career journey?
1: Yeah. I'm a lawyer by background. I practice antitrust law or competition law for... Nice. little less than a decade in both Washington, D.C. and New York at a global large law firm. And then I made the move to practical law, which is a service or a product that's really aimed at Helping lawyers know what to do in their job. So law school trains you on sort of legal concepts, but it doesn't really teach you how to like do your job. You know, as like a trade. So how do you draft a contract? What are the things you should be thinking about in this? If you're going in front of a judge, actually, what what do you say? How do you prepare yourself? So it's like the know-how piece of law. So I joined Practical Law to help launch their practice area on antitrust, because I practiced antitrust law. And that's really practical law's model is to hire experienced subject matter experts in a particular area and have them build out the content for sort of their peers. I did that for a number of years and then I moved over to the product management side of practical law. So more our business strategy and our product development and our investment strategy. Did that for a while and that's I think where my heart is is in product management. You know, like I really found my space. And I've been now for the past few years working in product management on the legal technology side. So around contract analysis and document automation and those sorts of parts of lawyers' day-to-day workflow. And I just recently became the vice president of product for ThoughtTrace.
0: Nice. Yeah. So... Do you have like a, a background or history of being interested in tech for fun? Or if not, what's the learning curve been like becoming VP at a tech company?
1: Yeah, I so I think I've always had a background or interest in problem solving. And I think that's the connection for me. I definitely, you know, didn't grow up coding or, you know, building robots or those sorts of things that a lot of my colleagues have done. It's been much more on problem solving and understanding jobs to be done and sort of, you know, what are the what are people's priorities? And so that's Kind of what brought me into product and, and closer and closer to tech in terms of the learning curve, yeah, for sure, there's been a learning curve. I've been lucky to work with a lot of smart colleagues, you know, and just sort of be exposed to what they're doing and, and taking my own, you know, initiative to study and learn. Um, but yeah, I, I guess that's I've sort of just backed my way into it.
0: That's awesome. So, what's your day to day look like at Thought Trace?
1: Yeah, so like we just mentioned, Thomson Reuters, which is where Practical Law is and the products that I've worked on acquired ThoughtTrace. And so a lot of what we're focused on right now is launching ThoughtTrace into the legal professionals market. So as I mentioned, it's a great product in the energy space, and we want to bring it into sort of the legal landscape overall. And so we're doing a number of things. Um, We're getting ready to launch to law firms. So I'm kind of working on on that piece, talking a lot to our law firm customers around their needs, their tech stack, and how ThoughtTrace fits into that. We've already launched into corporate legal departments. So that's a big part of what we're doing. And then I think maybe the most exciting part of what we're focusing on is how do we build the best models, the best AI models in the world for legal professionals? Like that's at the heart of our project. And as I mentioned before I worked at practical law and practical law is full of subject matter experts who are deep experts in their areas of law. And so really what we're, what we aim to do and what we're doing is bringing practical law and thought trace together. So getting our practical law subject matter experts to leverage the AI building capabilities in thought trace to build out very specific, very deep domain models in different areas of law for our users. So finance, capital markets, M&A due diligence, insurance, IP, all of those sorts of topics. We're taking experts in that area and using the powers of ThoughtTrace to create new models as content types almost for our users.
0: That's awesome. So I read, and I think you started to touch on it there, but I read that you were working on creating the standard for legal AI. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, so contract analysis has started to make inroads in the legal technology space, right? It's one of of the areas where there's innovation and experimentation and and, and maybe some customer adoption, but it's not widespread. And it's really our belief that users don't want to spend a lot of time training their own AI models, right? And for sure, there are people, there are lawyers who are interested in technology and interested in AI, and that's fine. But as their day-to-day job, they don't want to be building AI models. And what we aim to do is take that pain point away and really start thinking about legal AI as a service. Let us build the models. We have the expert lawyers, we have the technology to do it. So we'll build the models that will set the standard for, you know, analysis in in the legal space.
0: So I imagine like when AI started making its way into medicine, there had to be like a period of building up trust. Like, is this computer going to look at my brain as good as a doctor? (laughs) because this diagnosis needs to be correct. There's also similar high stakes looking at a contract. You don't want to miss anything. Absolutely. Are you guys doing like education within the legal space to try and start building up that trust for prospective clients?
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Thomson Reuters has long been a player in the AI space. But what I will say is that I've seen a curve sort of developing where lawyers are starting to gain trust in AI, right? Like it, it's it's very different from where it was, I would say three or four years ago. There's an understanding, you know, and I, I think also an appreciation of what the AI can do and what it can't do, like to understand that there are limits to it. And I think if people understand those expectations, then they can sort of develop that trust in the AI. But it's not part of our vision to remove lawyers from the loop, right? And have, you know, AI-driven contract analysis that eliminates the need for lawyers it's really to help lawyers focus on the things that are most important in a deal or in a matter and using the ai to triage that and sort of take a really big problem and make it a lot smaller so that the lawyer can focus on that and really add their value and their judgment to that smaller problem as opposed to looking through 20,000 documents to find a couple important pieces of information let the ai do that piece right and then you apply your judgment on what those what that information means and how you're going to advise your client based on
0: that Right. Yeah. It's not doing the analysis and coming to conclusions. Right. So from what I'm understanding, the capabilities is quantifying, I guess, and breaking down the valuable pieces of the contract so that they're easy to look at and aggregate. And then that's like where it ends?
1: I would say that's where it starts.
0: Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah.
1: So <laughs> thought Trace will narrow that problem down for you, do the reading on your behalf, get you to the sort of the imp- important information. And then from there, we enable you to sort of apply judgment and say, okay, I, this is the extraction. This is the thought that Thought Trace found in this document. Here's as a lawyer, here's what I think and apply your analysis to that and then continue and then share that with your colleagues or move that into a, rep- a report or add that into a workflow for how you do your work. So it's one piece of where Thought Trace starts on the journey.
0: That's cool. So tell me about what is 1 plus 1 equals 100? That's uh, something I've seen in the branding. and
1: Yeah, it's it's the way that I see practical subject matter expertise and ThoughtTrace coming together, right? So the reason Thomson Reuters acquired ThoughtTrace is because it has the best model building capabilities in the market, right? We did a huge market scan. We lo- looked at a lot of other players. We dabbled in the space as well with building tools, and what ThoughtTrace can accomplish in a short amount of time is, is just unparalleled, right? So if you think about that sort of the model building capabilities in ThoughtTrace from an AI perspective, and if you marry that up with, as I mentioned, like the best world-class subject matter experts, really those two things are our differentiator. You know, there's a lot of players in the market. No one has that, like sort of the, the best market practicing lawyers to to guide and develop the ai so that's really the one plus one equals 100 it's really just taking legal ai to a whole different level and taking that pain away from lawyers and law firms of having to train their own ai it's really that equation
0: yeah so your your subject matter experts that you've had for years are the ones training the ai that's right okay that's cool that kind of reminds me another medical reference, just because we've had a couple of those companies on the show. There's this one called Intelligent Medical Objects that does AI for understanding medical terminology, and they also like codify a lot of medical terms. And like they're talking about deploying terms to hospitals, which is something I didn't realize needed to happen, but it makes sense. So that the notes-
1: standardized, yes, yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a similar idea around like they have doctors and specialists that instead of their job being doctor, their job is at intelligent medical objects codifying terms because they're the best people in the world to be doing that.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's the kind of thing that when you're in practice, I imagine, as a physician or in practice as a lawyer, you don't have time to sit down and do those sort of academic things of create a list of terminologies or, or, you know, build out the perfect way to approach a contract. But that's the kind of stuff that folks at Practical Hour, Thomson Reuters can do. Like that's their full-time job.
0: Yeah. And so when I'm talking about AI with someone, I always like going to the ethical side of it. And how are you avoiding bias in that conversation? And I'm especially interested here because I mean, legal stuff, obviously huge impacts to people's Uh lives. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about like, the, the steps taken at ThoughtTrace and Thomson Reuters to make sure bias is staying out?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting. So some of the big issues that when I think about bias in legal AI, it's much more sort of when things are predictive and based on prior case law or sort of sentencing, right? So for example, you've you know you've seen things where if you use AI to predict the likelihood of recidivism, right, of, of a prisoner or, or a criminal the AI will, because of what it's been trained on, will recommend a higher sentencing for a Black person as opposed to a white person. And it's very divorced from the actual performance of those two individuals, right? But it's based on historically biased case law or, or judgments going into it. So that's not an issue really that we have to deal with in the types of models that we build, right? Our models are more trained to say, if you have a contract and the contract has an indemnity clause, right? Like help me find similar indemnity clauses. So there's I mean, there's risk for bias in the way that like one person might interpret indemnity, indemnity in a different way than someone else would interpret indemnity, but it's not the sort of prejudicial bias that impacts someone's rights, right? So not to say that it wouldn't be there, but it's actually much more like legal interpretation as opposed to sort of individual rights. So that way I feel like pretty good about what we're doing. Well, I, I totally hear the point, you know, and, and ThoughtTrace, obviously at, at TR, we take lots of steps to make sure that we have a, a variety of training data in what we do. But I think also equally important is that you have a diverse set of people doing the training and a diverse set of people evaluating the training, you know, in any type of supervised or unsupervised learning. I think it's sort of not only diversity in the data set, but diversity in the people who are involved in the, in the project.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's huge. I just remember when conversational AIs and stuff were first coming out and they're just trained by a bunch of dudes in a lab and they definitely had their shortcomings and still do. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. Oh, for sure. But it makes a lot of sense that as Trace is acting more as like a natural language understanding for legalese, <laughs> it's... Uh, right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really important for the end users of AI to to understand how the models that they rely on or the algorithms that they're relying on were created, right? So that's something that we will, we'll be transparent about. We like to really talk about that with our customers as well. Sort of what goes in to building these models? What types of documents is this trained on, right? How is this tested? How is it evaluated?
0: Yeah, so... Where is the human in the loop on the training process? Like the subject matter experts are training the AI, but I'm not exactly sure what that means in, in context. Like, are they, that look like? Yeah. Are they selecting the data or looking at the inputs and outputs or both?
1: All of that. Right. So let's say we want to build a model that helps you analyze a software sales agreement, a SaaS agreement, right? So the way that we would do that or the way that we do do that is we have a practical law subject matter expert who spent a lot of their life drafting SAS agreements and negotiating SAS agreements. They sit down sort of, and they start to say, these are the types of things that are important in the SAS agreement. If I were reviewing a SAS agreement, if I asked a junior associate at my firm to review a SAS agreement, these are the things I'd want them to look at, right? So they start out by building that. And you know, you can call that an ontology or a taxonomy, but these are the types of relevant concepts in the agreement. Then what they do is then we take a bunch of SaaS agreements and annotate them towards those concepts, right? So if they say a super important thing in a SaaS agreement is the length of the contract, right? So then we'll find 50, 100, however many diverse examples of that to train the AI to recognize length of term in a SaaS agreement. And then we test it against agreements, right? Agreements that the machine hasn't seen, that it hasn't been trained on. Either like more documents in the wild or customers' documents when they test out models to see how it performs. And then we fine-tune and calibrate. So the human is doing all the training. What we've taken out of the equation is really having to have a data scientist then take the training and tune that to build the model, right? That's already been sort of automated in ThoughtTrace's ML platform.
0: So is that difficult data to procure? Like I imagine companies are probably a little bit protective of their contracts.
1: Uh, Yeah, so there's a huge publicly available database of contracts in the United States, like agreements that are filed with the SEC. So that's publicly available. Uh, And Thomson Reuters... You know, because we are legal content providers, we have a lot of access to legal information. So that's another sort of strength we bring to the table. And then ThoughtTrace historically has had for their corporate customers the, the access to the corporate documents to train models. So it's, it's, really, it, that's, it's seen a very diverse set of content in training.
0: That's awesome. That's smart. So something that's been on my mind because I've been feeling it and <laughs> working on with my team is burnout. I somewhat recently got to do an interview with Phil, a CTO of a consultancy called Melillo. And he talked about never wanting to overload their employees because as a consultancy, sometimes there's big fires that need to put out that require a lot of overtime. So everybody needs to be kind of not stretched thin the rest of the time so they have margin. Hmm. And yeah. yeah, just to like, it's like strategic to give margin for his consultants so that they're able to put the customer first when they really need to. And I'm just curious, like on your team, how do you gauge how they're feeling with their work and how do you try to prevent burnout for them?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. and I know lots and lots of leaders and teams are are trying to figure this out. You know, I think this might sound obvious, but to me, the, the most instrumental thing is to talk to your team and find out how they're feeling. Right. And, and get honest answers out of them. And you can only do that if you've invested the time in building the relationship with your team. So it's not something that you can start now. Like if you've invested the time in building relationships with your team, then you have that trust. You can talk about how they're feeling, how they're doing. So, I mean, I make that a key part of how I relate to my team. I think the other really important thing one can do as a leader, as a manager, is helping their team prioritize, right? Because everybody has more than they can do, right? Like very few people have like margin protected for, for things. And so if you can help by setting clear priorities for your team, but then also when they're dealing with a, a workload, helping them strategically prioritize within that and deciding what's not going to get done, I think that is critical. Like we all know, here are the things you need to do, but we have to be able to say, here are the things I'm, I'm not going to do because I want to have time to do these things and do these things well and not burn out. So to me, those are things that my managers have done before that have been helpful. And I think those are the things I try to do with my team as well.
0: That's awesome. Is that like stuff you handle in one-on-ones or like do you have like open discussion ever?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a combination of both. So I think in terms of setting priorities for a team, that should be pretty widely and publicly done and shared, right? So it's either like in an all-hands meeting or your team meetings creating documentation around that OKR. So everyone knows, like, what are we trying to do? Where, where are we going? And there should be sort of collective understanding. So if anyone has to make a decision about what's important, where to focus their energy, they can refer back to those priorities. Like, does this further those priorities? Or is this work taking me in another direction? And I don't need to go down that path. But then in terms of individual workloads and individual priority setting, I think that mostly happens in a one-on-one setting, right? Where you talk through, like, what are the things you're doing over the next two weeks, like in the sprint, for example?
0: Yeah, that's, that's something I've, like an area where I've been learning recently, helping with the individual workloads of my team Yeah, and helping with prioritization. Cause you know, some people just will ruthlessly prioritize. You just say like, Hey, here's the things that you need to get done. Tell me when they're going to happen. And then you get dates and that's when it happens. But some people are like, when you say, here's all the things that need to get done. They're like, oh my God, I have to get all these done right now. I'm going to work until 8 p.m. (laughs) I've been like learning to recognize that so I can say, hey, don't work until 8 p.m. I just need to know when. I don't need it to happen today.
1: Yeah. You know, another thing on that point, what we talk about a lot is sort of like the shadow of the leader, right? So if you're sending your team an email on Sunday, you know, and even if you say, hey, sorry for the Sunday email, don't worry about this till Monday you know, they're going to worry about it on Sunday. And so, and I'm totally guilty of that because I always did that because I'm thinking about work on Sunday, you know, sitting like waiting to pick up my daughter from something and I'll shoot an email to the team. And then I realized that, that like, as much as I say, don't worry about this, I've now put work in their face on Sunday. Right. So yeah. like stop doing those things, stop kind of set examples for the kind of behavior that can lead to like work-life balance, I think. And that's, of course, challenging in a product organization or, you know, with a motivated, ambitious team. But I think that's an important thing too. And that's something I need to keep working on.
0: Yeah, I had I had a realization of that too, because I would I would do the after hours messages and stuff, but whenever I would Get an email after hours when I'm doing something else. It would just like ruin my day it for five you minutes. For a loop,
1: right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: so definitely, schedule send was a uh, <laughs> game changer. Yeah, game changer. For <laughs> that. But then
1: the other problem is that like Monday at nine a.m., you get all these emails that everyone scheduled over the weekend to go out. <laughs> they all kind of like flood in at once. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's not perfect, but it's. Right. I think it's better. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So, what would you say is? something you wish you knew when you first transitioned from practicing lawyer to leading a team? Hmm,
1: A couple of things. I think maybe one is to be aware of everyone's tendency, I think, to gravitate towards people who are like themselves, right? Whether that's like your demographic profile or it's like your ways of working or your sense of humor and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And I think I have noticed over time before that I've done things like that, or like there's certain people I, I will go to more and work with more just because there's something about them that's familiar and it's probably familiar to, to me. And so to be really conscious of that from the outset and, and make sure you are equally distributing work and opportunities and your time to your team, I think is something that I'm very conscious of now, but I, it wasn't even on my radar, you know, going into being a people leader.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's, it's hard not to give extra attention to someone if you like talking to them.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. And and that's like really important because that affects, you know, everybody's money and life.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing is actively making time to coach people on your team, right. And understand where they want to go with their careers and give them opportunities to get there. Right. So to have those sort of proactive conversations, like I've not, been super directive with my career. I kind of want to work on interesting problems and work with cool people. And so I sort of go where things take me. And that's kind of, and I think that as a manager, you can do better by your team to sort of, if they do have ambitions and they do want to go certain places or they just want to develop certain skills, right? Like how do you give them those opportunities and how do you coach them and push them into those things?
0: Yeah, that's something that my Co host Joel. And by the way, when your company's Joel was on the podcast, he was interviewed by my company's Joel, that's which was great. funny. Yeah.
1: Joel to Joel. But that's
0: something that my Joel did <laughs> pretty well for me as I've worked like lots of different roles within our company. Every time like I was needed to do some other change, he like asked, Is this something you want to do? Like, do you have any interest in actually leading a team or something? And but I know that if my answer is no, that's going to be okay and we'll find another solution. That's been like a really big benefit for my work environment, mental health, like just knowing that like I do have autonomy here.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Before we wrap up, is there any extra shout out or soapbox you want to step up on before we wrap up here?
1: Well, I mean, I definitely want to, send a shout out to the thought trace team, you know, joined Thomson Reuters over the past couple of months. And it's, it's been wonderful for TR. We're su- super excited about this team and, and the product and sort of the opportunities ahead of us. So I'd be remiss to not shout that out before we go. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast